With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. You're listening to the Red Sea Podcast. Back to full. Red Sox fans have longed to hear it. The Boston Red Sox are world champions. Part of the Over the Monster Network. Swinging a high deep drive in the right field. That one's called to the right. Hunter on the move. Racing back. It's over his head. It's gone. It's into the bullpen. This game is tied. This game is tied. David Ortiz. David Ortiz. David Ortiz. Presented by SB Nation. It hasn't Hosted by Jake Devereaux. Here comes a one-two pitch. And featuring Keaton DeRocher. Strikeouts in 2017 for Chris Sale. An absolute strikeout machine. 13 tonight against the Baltimore Orioles. They're all loaded. High fly ball. Deep in the left center field. Way back it carries. And that ball is gone. The Red Sox walk it off. In style. That's how it's done. The X-Man strikes. Fly ball to deep left center field. Devers has hit it out. The rookie takes Chapman the other way to tie the game. Welcome back to the Over the Monster podcast. This is your host, Jake Devereaux, and today I'm joined by Keaton DeRocher of the Dynasty Guru and Over the Monster, and today we have a special guest, Jen McCaffrey of The Athletic. Um, guys, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, all right, so let's get right into it. Um, Jen, you've been writing uh, at The Athletic during this whole craziness going on with COVID-19, um, how have you been filling your time without games, and what's that been like trying to write about baseball and cover the game with everything stopped? Yeah, um, well, it's definitely been a challenge. Um, I think, you know, our main objective is just trying to keep people engaged and obviously also just trying to provide some sort of distraction for for people that are dealing with, you know, obviously a lot bigger issues going on in the world right now. Um, and obviously that's, you know, what sports is in general for a lot of people is just a distraction, kind of get away from the everyday life. And, and not having games has definitely been uh, an interesting challenge. Um, but we've kind of gone about it where we are, you know, there's still news with the team, whether it's, you know, Chris Sale's surgery or, you know, different things that are kind of cropping up here and there. Obviously, what's going to happen with the baseball schedule and things like that. Um, and then mixing it in with kind of we've been doing like rewatching, um, you know, historic games, whether it's from 2004 or I just did one on Roger Clemens's, you know, 20, first 20 strikeout game and kind of watching it from a current day perspective, um, kind of doing a lot of like series of, you know, what if the what if this decision had been made in the franchise history? How would that have changed things? A lot of kind of like looking back and, and that kind of thing, um, because we can't really do too much writing about the current roster because we don't really know exactly what's going to be happening. So just trying to keep people engaged and keep people, um, you know, interested and kind of, again, distracted from, from what's happening in the world right now. Yeah, it's really interesting. I've enjoyed a lot of the articles. I actually really like the going back and looking at the historical baseball stuff. I thought your Roger Clemens article was really good. And um, as you know, someone, I think you're right around my age, Jen, early 30s. So um, 
what's that been like going back and covering games that you hadn't really seen, you know, when they were happening in events like that? Yeah, it's uh, it's been kind of like a fun exercise, you know. Um, you know, obviously the games in yeah the eighties I wasn't you know necessarily alive for. I was a toddler, so yeah. Um, like you said, that's kind of funny, even just watching from like a journalistic perspective of uh of like just the broadcast itself and um different things you notice about how how the games are covered and you know even one thing i left out in that in that Roger Clemens uh story obviously it took place in 86 and at the they mentioned on the broadcast that uh there was still at the time like a um a bar in the press room like i i had, I had known that was a thing you know back in the day i thought it was more in like the 60s and 70s but they they gave like a shout out to the bartender in the press room like press press room like bar wow. um which i didn't realize that was still like around in the late 80s i'm not sure exactly when it went out you know went out of uh went out of commission we definitely don't have that nowadays um but it was just just certain things are it was kind of funny to to and obviously the game itself you know just uh, in in Fenway how much Fenway obviously has changed over the years and just kind of the advertisements and the commercialization of the game itself and um yeah it's been pretty interesting you know not just watching the games but everything that else that kind of goes along with it and kind of how you know much the world has changed itself um you know over the years too I think the weirdest thing for me watching older games is seeing that there's no seats on top of the monster. Yeah. Talking about just the evolution of Fenway Park. Absolutely, that's another one, yeah. And I mean even in like the um you know, that's always super noticeable, but even like in the Clemens game there was like an ad like on the uh in Fenway for, for Marlboro, like cigarettes, and it's like that <laughs> definitely is not something that they advertise nowadays. Like just things like that that make you kinda laugh. I was thinking though that they could have really used a bar in the the press box during 2019, probably 2011, and probably the Bobby V year too. So absolutely, some people missing that bar, I'm sure. Yeah, totally. Um, all right, you talked about Chris Sale a little bit, and Keaton, I know you had a question to ask about Chris Sale, so why don't we just jump right into that? Sure. Yeah. How much does a disrupted season play, or? did it play in Chris Sale finally getting surgery? It seemed like at the time when all of baseball operations were suspended, he was going to try and push through it. But do you think it had a lot to do with him finally getting the surgery? Yeah, uh, someone else asked me this recently, too, and I think... You know, I think it probably played a little bit of a factor, but at the same time, you know, after he had gotten shut down when he started, you know, coming back in, in early March and he, you know, had the um the, the the forearm strain there and was shut down, I think it was around March second. And they had that two week period. When he talked to us then when we were still at spring training, he basically said we're gonna take two weeks and if I come back and it's still sore, then you know, he didn't say then surgery, but he basically said like that's that's the the final straw. So it it sounded at the time in early March that if he came back after, you know, this two week rest period and anti inflammatory period um, and still was sore that they were pretty resigned to the fact they were going to have surgery. And obviously at that point, we had no idea that any of this, you know, was going to happen in terms of the shutdown of baseball and society in general. So uh, I think, you know, knowing that, you know, they weren't going to be playing, you know, helped a tad bit, but I also just don't think that they, I think they realized this was the last straw and that, you know, this was going to, they'd kind of, uh, exhausted all their options, you know, and, and obviously, you know, James Andrews and Neil Alatrache had been giving him this guidance all along of kind of resting and anti-inflammatory and everything. So, um, you know, he was kind of going by their guidance, but I think they realized once it got to a certain point that, you know, all right, we, we need the surgery to get done. And, um, you know, the fact that there's no baseball playing being played now is like one small silver lining in all of this. Um, but, but yeah, I, I, I don't think it played as much of a role, um, as, more so just that he, you know, this was the final straw and that they, they needed to get it done. How close was he to getting surgery last August, September? Yeah, he talked about that too. And again, like he mentioned just kind of going, you know, at the time when he saw, um, in August when he had the, inflammation um and was shut down and put on the injury list uh he saw james andrews then and was given the prp shot and you know surgery wasn't recommended then um and you know like you if you're going to a doctor you kind of listen to what the doctor says so i mean 
you know, he talked, when we talked to him last week on the conference call, he said, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. but at the same time, what are you going to do, like, go against the doctor's orders and, you know, a guy that's done this, you know, how many hundreds of, maybe even thousand time, thousands of times. Um, so, yeah, you know, he talked about, you know, people um, viewing this as wasted time and, and you know, knowing what we know now, yeah, it's wasted time, but at the same time, I think they were all thinking that if this isn't completely necessary, then, you know, why go through a, a surgery that maybe isn't, um, you know, it's it's been done so many times before, but there's still inherent risk in having any kind of surgery. Um, so I think, yeah, there's wasted time, but you can say that, you know, after the fact, I think. So um, I don't think he was necessarily close to surgery last, you know, September, just because they were listening to what James Andrews said. And if Andrews had said, yeah, I think we should have surgery, then they probably would have, but he, but he didn't. So um, I think that's, you know, kind of why we are where we are right now. Yeah, I mean, talking about hindsight being 2020, I want to go back to the Chris Sale contract, the, when he actually signed his extension with the Red Sox. Um, he was under control for one more year after they had won the World Series, and he dealt with health problems towards the end of 2018. And when that deal was signed, I really didn't understand it. I thought that it would have been smart for the team to wait and actually, you know, see how he performed, how his health was during 2019. But obviously they didn't do that. So I wanted to get your take. When they made that deal, did you think it was a good deal for the Red Sox, or were you also kind of confused that they had kind of rewarded Chris Sale with this contract despite the health concerns? I think that was a big narrative at the time, and I think it was a big, like, kind of, yeah, this guy is really good pitcher, but he has had some, you know, injury problems very recently, um, even dating back, obviously, to that 2018 season. Um, so it was a little bit of a head scratcher. Um, and, you know, you, you do look at kind of the history of his career and, you know, how strong he's been um, in kind of all of that going in. And maybe they, you know, were looking at it as they didn't want to lose him in, in you know, a walk here into free agency. Uh, but, yeah, I think I think a majority of people looked at that contract and said, well, that's interesting timing um, that, you know, they'd give him this extension at this point coming off a year where he was banged up. Um, so yeah, I think, um, again, it's one of those things that we could debate forever. Um, but yeah, I think at the time it definitely was, and it was, you know, also around the same, same time that they had given, or within like a, a week later, they gave Bogarts his extension. So it was, it was definitely, um, just kind of strange timing altogether. Um, and obviously that same winter they, you know, in the in winter meetings, they had extended, uh, Avaldi. So it just kind of felt like they were like throwing money at the wind. Um, and, uh, and yeah, the, the, the sale one was especially curious just because he was, had had those issues. And, you know, you probably would want to see him at least pitch a little bit more, even though he's been such a solid pitcher throughout his career. And, and now obviously we know there's been even more issues that are going to, you know, eat into the, eat into the contract itself. Yeah, I mean, I still think it would have been a good deal for the Red Sox if they got three seasons out of sale and then just let him walk. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, yeah, I mean, I guess they were, I, I wish I knew their thought process. I mean, obviously yeah. they don't really kind of let us into those, into those thoughts too much aside from just saying how much they like a guy and, you know, they kind of talk around it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess they just figured he was, he was too good to let go and really wanted to, you know, wanted to keep him. Um, but, uh, yeah, you could, you could make, you could certainly make an argument that they should have moved on at the end of, you know, end of uh end of it just to avoid all of this kind of in between now was that 100 percent the decision of dave dombrowski or was that a deal that henry had signed off on knowing you know all of the the things that were coming up obviously the bogarts extension hadn't been finalized then mookie betts was still looming in the future um obviously the owner has to sign off on deals like that but how much of that decision making process actually fell to Dombrowski and how much of that was made organizationally. Yeah, I mean, again, that's one of those things that we never, you know, they're never really going to tell us, but I think, you know, reading between the lines, it was something that Dombrowski pushed for and sort of convinced ownership that, you know, we should do this, and they said, okay, and, you know, then obviously later in the season ended up firing him and basically saying that he made poor decisions on contracts, so you can kind of look back at that one as maybe 
being one of them and the Evaldi being another one. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, Dombrowski also probably knew at that time that Mookie wasn't going to resign or, you know, wanted to, wasn't going to sign an extension and wanted to go into free agency. So that probably was a factor. They probably kind of come to terms with that at that point. Um, but, you know, I, yeah, I think it's always a combination of things. I don't think, you know, you know, obviously ownership has to sign off on things, but I also don't think, you know, they have to have some say in it if they didn't want, they didn't think, you know, they have a lot of smart people in, in a lot of different, uh, departments, obviously, of the Red Sox, and if they didn't think that there was, you know, a, a chance of this being a good contract or, or promising for them that they probably could have overridden, what, what Dombrowski wanted or at least, you know, talked around it or talked him out of it. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think it's a combination, but it's one of those things we'll never really know for sure who, you know, uh, who kind of gave, gave the go ahead or who had the, the, the upper hand, I guess, in terms of, um, signing off on it. Yeah. Do you think that we'll look back at this contract in a similar fashion, um, as like the Sandoval, Hanley Ramirez, Carl Crawford contracts? I don't know. It's hard to say because we don't really know what sales going to come back out of this. You can look at kind of, if he comes back in a year, maybe, you know, beginning of next season, if baseball's, you know, up and running and everything by then, if if he comes back around maybe May of next year, um, kind of an unoptimistic timetable because that'd be about 12 months. um, Like, what does he come, what kind of pitcher? If he comes back and he's, good and you know the sale that we have seen in previous years you know before in 16 and 17 and um or 17 i guess really 17 and the beginning part of 18 um then i don't think you know you can really compare this to those because those those contracts were just you know they they didn't they didn't uh run their course but they also just weren't very productive i mean hanley was for a tiny bit pablo kind of never was um, but I think you get, you've gotten a lot more out of sale and obviously a World Series than, uh, than, than either of those two contracts. And just, yeah, he might come back out of this surgery and be good and strong and pitch for several more years. I mean, I, I wrote something a few weeks ago trying to look at guys that had surgery, you know, Tommy John after the age of 30 and how they came back and guys that were, um, you know, elite pitchers or really good pitchers, you know, before the surgery came back and were pretty much pretty similar kind of after the surgery. Guys like Tim Hudson and, um, you know, and John Smoltz and, you know, you could throw sale in that conversation for sure. So, um, I think it's just a matter of how he rehabs and comes back from this, but the fact that he's already kind of helped them win a World Series and, and what he's done, you know, in the first couple of years, I'm not sure that it's necessarily a one for one comparison with those two contracts. It the comments like, that he made. Oh, sorry, it, it, it just seems like Sale feels really bad about this too, which is one of the things that like I feel extra bad for him um, because it seems like he's really distraught that he feels like he's letting the team down by not living up to the deal right away. It wouldn't surprise me if at the end of Sale's deal, if he is productive after he comes back from Tommy John, if he signs like an under market extension to stay with the Red Sox. Yeah, I mean, there's absolutely no question that he feels, you know, awful and, and under, like, you know, underperforming and feels like he failed everyone. I mean, he flat out says how, how disappointed he is with himself about all this and how he, he tried really hard. And, you know, anytime you kind of hear him talk about any situation where he's not lived up to his expectations, he is extremely, you know, self-deprecating really of just you know he expects a lot of himself he knows what he can do and when he doesn't you know fulfill those expectations he's really hard on himself um and so yeah he definitely feels frustrated and and angry about this whole situation and was i think part of the uh, you know um you know he was listening to the doctors the whole time i feel like but a part of it was also he was trying to not have this surgery maybe in one you know in one sense just because he knew he was going to be out for so long and um the optics of all of that uh but yeah i mean if if he comes back and he's strong and you know at the end of this contract he's what 34 35 yeah um yeah 3 years more so and he just turned 31 if he's still strong he maybe he does do something like that i mean it's again it's hard to predict you know where the team will be at that point, what the financial situation will look like, you know, all that kind of stuff, where the rotation will stand and all that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely a possibility. I feel like he thinks he owes them something. Um, and he's a really, you know, 
from a like a people you talked you know in his life he's he's extremely like a, a loyal person so I think he does feel some you know guilt in that sense of that he's kind of wasting a year of their time so maybe that does play into things down the road of maybe taking a more team friendly uh, deal after this is all done if he comes back I mean there's a lot of ifs there but um, but yeah it's 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 certainly something that's possible. His his the personality com- is just tailor made for Boston. This this market yeah. loves him. Yeah, I think people appreciate his honesty, his you know his um, authenticity. Um, he kind of you know doesn't really uh, you know he doesn't really mince words, um, and he's just accountable. And I think people you know fans here have dealt with a lot of people that aren't accountable, a lot of players that aren't accountable, and a lot of people that kind of skirt issues or um, you know don't. Don't want to face the media in tough times, or you know, don't want to face fans in tough times, and he he does all of those things, and he's uh, you know just pretty stand up, stand up guy. So I think um, people appreciate that, and and that's kind of um, you know why why it's been a good fit, despite you know a lot of these uh, injury issues that he's had to deal with. The comments that you outlined in your piece about Sally seemed incredibly optimistic about the process. And how much do you think having a teammate like Evaldi, who's gone through it twice already, will kind of help him through his entire rehab process? Yeah, I think it'll help a lot. And I mean, he talked about, you know, just already talking to Nate about it. And obviously Nate's had it twice, um, once when he was younger and then once more recently, uh, you know, four, three, what is it, four years ago at this point. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think that's really helpful. Anytime you have, you know, also Brandon Workman had, uh, Tommy John about five years ago too, four or five years ago. So he's another guy that he can, they can kind of, um, just give him ideas of how to go through the rehab process. And, um, you know, he talked about, uh, Avaldi, you know, making it, telling him that to make it kind of like a two week, two week at a time goal. Cause the, the time, the time frame of looking at it as a whole year of rehab kind of eats you up alive, he said. And um, if you set yourself mini goals of, you know, I, I'm going to try to get this done by the end of two weeks and this kind of this next step by, by you know, by this point in a month, um, then that makes it more approachable and more realistic. Um, so, yeah, I think it's really helpful to have those kind of guys around him. Um, and, yeah, he was a lot more optimistic. When we talked to him that last time in, in uh, early March, he – he was really just down and out because I think he was resigned to the fact that he had tried all these other ways of, of resting. And he had, you know, after he came back from that pneumonia, he was feeling good and thought he had kind of, I think he said he thought he had gotten over the hump of, you know, the winter time of just all this rehab and building back up and obviously was sick with the pneumonia and then came back from that and was starting to throw and felt really healthy, he said. Um, and then to just kind of, feel this after that first live VP session was like deflating. Um, so he was pretty down and out that first time. But I think, you know, after having had the surgery and talked to people and kind of laid out, you know, the plan, I, one of the other things that he said was that he knows that he can work hard at, you know, at, and that's one thing he can control, um, working hard at rehab. And, uh, and so I think he said, like, if that's the only thing standing in my way, then, you know, I'll, I'll definitely be able to, you know, conquer this. So, I mean, I think he feels that, you know, now that he has a plan um, and it's not just some ambiguous pain or, you know, maybe let's get a shot or whatever. Like now that he has a plan and that this is, you know, this has worked for lots of people in the past, that, uh, that, that he's kind of like on the right path right now. Yeah, it's great to see. I'm, I'm happy for him. It seems like a big weight is lifted off his shoulders. So um, one of the players that uh, we haven't talked about yet is uh, Mookie Betts. We kind of alluded to the other person that was involved in that trade is people that don't take accountability and David Price. Um, <laughs> but, you know, this whole trade, the, the craziest thing about the Mookie trade to me is that it's happening in this season where we might end up with a complete missed year. And the Red Sox were able to get Verdugo, Jeter Downs, uh, Connor Wong for the package uh, that they sent back in Mookie and Price, and obviously they're paying down some of that Price money. But this is looking like a really good deal, especially because Mookie is going to become a free agent at the end of the year. I guess my question is less about the deal, but what happened between Mookie Betts and the Red Sox? There's been so much reported on this, and 
how the Red Sox made multiple offers, and Mookie came back with this giant counter of $420 million. But the Red Sox clearly felt like this player was not signable, um, or at least wasn't signable before he reached free agency. So in your eyes, what was the disconnect between Mookie and the team, and kind of who's at fault, uh, or is there anybody at fault here? Yeah, I think all along, I know it's obviously, you know, been something we've talked a lot more over the past, you know, six months or a year. Honestly, uh, you know, and I've kind of held this stance for a, a couple years now that I've always thought Mookie wanted to head into free agency and, you know, he was never going to sign a, uh, an extension just because that's kind of how he, he operates. I mean, he's taught, he talked, you know, before this past year when he kind of closed up a little bit more early on in his career, he talked about um, and especially in a lot of those arbitration cases where, you know, he would, uh, that the time that they didn't settle or they didn't reach an agreement, he went and he got the, the more, the extra money that he wanted of just setting kind of like a, setting a tone in the market because he knew that he could, he was the type of player that could do that. Um, and I think he really takes that seriously in terms of just seeing what you're worth on the open market. And I think it's hard for people to reconcile that he wanted to be able to do that while also have having had a you know a good and you know a good experience and he liked Boston but also wanted to do what was best for him in a business sense and he constantly would refer to this as like a business decision baseball's a business you know even after Dabrowski got fired I remember to talk I remember talking to him that same night in the clubhouse and someone asked him you know, does this change anything? And he said, if anything, this makes it, you know, uh, makes it even more look or even more like a business because, you know, you get, you know, Dombrowski brought a championship here and got fired, you know, less than a year later. So I think he, you know, as much as um, people want guys to take, you know, hometown discounts or, um, or anything, you know, along those lines, or maybe even take a little less because they look at the, those eye popping numbers and say 300 million, just take 300 million, you know, it's, you'll be set, you know, for life anyway, no, doesn't matter the bottom line. I think he really looks at it from like a very, um, business kind of like mathematical stance of, um, I'm worth more than this. And, you know, other guys similar or not even as good as me have gotten more money. Um, and so I think that's kind of like just something that's been instilled in him from like a family perspective and his family's always been involved in negotiations, um, from, from kind of from day one when he signed with the Red Sox, um, you know, when Danny Watkins signed him back, um, you know, early on and they've kind of, they've kind of been a, a part of the process all along the way. Um, so I think that's very important to him. Um, and it, it's, it can also kind of stand alongside the fact that he still had a good time in Boston and, um, you know, still loved his time in Boston. And it, I don't think he, I think he wanted to make it clear that it wasn't kind of like a slight that he didn't sign with Boston just because he didn't, you know, uh, agree to what they wanted or agree to their terms. So I don't, I don't know. I don't think there's anyone at fault necessarily. Um, it just kind of was like a, uh, you know, a, a mutual decision, I guess. Does he sign back with them if, you know, in the, in the wintertime this upcoming year, if they're, you know, if he, he enters into free agency again? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think there's a chance. I mean, if, if, if he consistently goes out there and says he wants to take, you know, the highest bidder and the, the, the team that gives him the most money and the Red Sox go out and give him the most money, then I mean, he'd be a hypocrite if he didn't, he didn't take that deal. Right. So, right. so we'll see. Um, you know, but, yeah, I think all along it's just sort of been he wasn't going to sign an extension because he wanted to see what he was worth on the open market. And it's a very strange year for this to be happening in. Uh, but, you know, the negotiations next winter will be really interesting to see what, what team he does end up with and what the contract looks like and, you know, a culmination of all of this after, you know, for, after so many years of talking about it. Well, a lot of fans feel like, when he did counter with the 420 million that it was the Red Sox it was the Red Sox responsibility to essentially give him whatever he wanted would that have been the right baseball decision in your opinion for them to just give Mookie Betts 420 million dollars yeah I mean again it's like I don't know I mean 
they obviously can afford it. They're a billion dollar corporation. You know, they're, they're, their franchise is worth, I think Forbes had their thing like four billion, five billion dollars, maybe even more than that. Yeah. Um, so I mean, financially wise, like you look at that and, and see they can afford it and obviously, um, you know, the type of player he is, you'd be around for another 12 years or so, um, in the, in the middle of that contract to, into his late thirties. Um, so I mean, yeah, like if you look at it in a black and white sense, I feel like yes, they probably should have. Um, but at the same time, you also look at the other side of things of needing to to reset and try to you know these these luxury tax threshold penalties kind of keep going up and up and up until you know until exponentially basically. Uh, until, you know, until you do reset and every team that kind of has been competing, the Dodgers have reset, the Yankees have reset, and it wasn't quite in the same um, context or kind of the same climate of losing out on signing a, a player like Betts. So I think it wasn't as, you know, publicized or wasn't as talked about um, that they sort of reduced their payrolls and went backwards. Um, but it's something that, you know, every team does, so in that sense, you sort of see what the Red Sox were doing. But, yeah, I mean, if you have a chance, you know, and that really was a um, a legitimate offer that he gave them. Um, and, and, again, like, that was just something that was reported. It's not something that we absolutely know um, was uh, was on the table. But if that was on the table, then maybe they probably should have, you know, and um, in reset in, in other ways um you know again all these other contracts that had been signed previously affected things and obviously affected payroll and um in in everything that kind of went in between and and Han Bloom kind of had a kind of had his hands tied in a lot of ways um but i think ownership just kind of wanted you know set this as the priority and in the priority wasn't for them at least it seems like just reading between the lines wasn't in signing bets do we know if yeah, <clears throat> do we know if there was an attempt um, to like extend a contract extension uh, between when the 2019 season ended and when he was eventually traded? Um, I don't. I mean, we don't know for sure. I don't think there was. Um, but uh, we talked to. I'm trying to remember like the timeline of when we talked to who, but I'm pretty sure. Um, in early on in spring training and talking with ownership um there were conversations about about that and i don't i believe they said there was no you know offer in that time frame but i don't want to tell you the wrong thing so um not yeah so i'm not i'm not 100% sure on that i'm not sure when the the 12 the reported 12 420 if it was made offer um from the bet side i'm not sure when that was made um but again, we like none of the team never and never has and probably never will, at least under this ownership, come out and say. And I mean, most teams don't. Yes, this is exactly what we offered, and this is exactly what happened. It's kind of you kind of gotta do a little digging and read between the lines and, and try to find out things, you know, uh, from people that aren't supposed to tell you certain things. So, so yeah, um, I'm not sure what offer, if any offer, was made in that time frame. Well, the other guy that got traded along with Mookie Betts is David Price. And David Price, it seems like, um, from everything that we've seen over the last few years, really didn't enjoy his time very much in Boston, but seems to really be enjoying his time so far in L.A. I guess I have two questions about David Price. Um, first is, why do you think he didn't enjoy it? And the second is, it's been reported that he's had sort of an outsized impact on the Red Sox clubhouse when he was here. A lot of players gravitated towards him. Uh, Benintendi was one of those players who gravitated towards him. Mookie Betts and he were pretty close. Um, how much do you think David Price not enjoying his time in Boston affected sort of how other players that are currently here viewed their time in Boston and free agency and things like that? Yeah, there's uh, absolutely no question he had an immense impact on the clubhouse. I think that that's kind of a, like a, yeah, a, 
no question about that. He was extremely well respected within that clubhouse and he kind of ran things. He was like one of the most veteran guys, but not only that, he was just one of the more outspoken guys. Um, and I think, uh, it was just something that they all, a lot of those guys, Eduardo Rodriguez, uh, specifically was extremely close with Price and, um, just the way that he, he went about his game. Um, I think, Rodriguez has taken a lot of that, um, not necessarily personality-wise, but just the way that Price kind of approached the game itself. Um, so, yeah, there's no question that he had a huge impact on a lot of those guys. And I think early on in spring training, you you felt um, you you felt like the lack of uh, you know I know Price had a um, a rough relationship with fans in the media, but you felt in the clubhouse the lack of his presence just because the players were so, um, you know, I think all winter it was all about Mookie Betts and sort of there was the possibility of Price being moved, but the fact that it was Mookie and Price, I think that really took a lot of them, took a lot of the, took a lot of air out of a lot of them um, just because there were the two, two of their biggest guys gone and obviously uh, Price, you know, with the pitching staff was a huge um kind of leader in that sense and just a kind of a leader in the clubhouse among the guys um whether people like to hear that or not uh so yeah i think uh, i think the way that he approaches a lot of things rubbed off on guys and i don't know if people necessarily want to hear that um but i mean everybody's kind of their own individual and i think you get into influenced by your friends and coworkers, you know in any sort of setting um so I think it's a little similar in that sense. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of, a lot of those guys, um, you know, I don't know that they'll be as outspoken or, or, uh, anything along those lines as Price. Um, and maybe will handle things in their own way. But, uh, but I think he definitely, um, impacted a lot of those guys, especially because a lot of them were, um, were and still are young, um, and kind of were, you know, when his time here coincided with a lot of them coming up and, and kind of coming into their own. So, um, so yeah, I think, uh, his inf- influence on the, on the clubhouse is pretty big. Um, and it'll be interesting to see over the coming years kind of how, uh, that lasts or how different guys shape things, uh, change things. Um, yeah. And, and if, if his, uh, his influence will kind of remain with some guys or if they'll just kind of, it'll turn into, you know, its own identity because new guys are around and, and other players are around. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's uh, ha- losing him, you know, obviously losing bets was the big focus for fans, but I think for a lot of the guys on the team, losing Price was uh, just as much of a, a big deal. Is that going to be, do you think it's going to be a positive thing for the Red Sox culture or a negative thing for the Red Sox culture, losing that? presence that is David Price in that clubhouse because obviously it had a huge impact like you said but I mean is that something that Heim Bloom made a priority like if we're going to trade Mookie we're attaching Price because I want to clear him out of the clubhouse or is was that just strictly a baseball thing I'm just trying to get a sense of whether or not his clubhouse presence was a positive or a negative yeah I mean I think it was a like from a media standpoint, I think he definitely influenced p- players to talk less um, and be less open with us um, and open and just open in general. Uh, from like a teammate perspective, I think it was like a very big like loyalty thing um, in that you know he had their backs in a lot of different ways. Um, I don't know that we'll ever really know that you know um, Heim Bloom went out and said we need to get rid of Price because he's a clubhouse cancer. Like, I don't know that it was necessarily that. Um, and obviously he he knew Price from way back at the beginning of Price's career, um, just having, um, you know, been in Tampa with him, um, especially in those early days. So, um, yeah, I think it's, like, it's sort of almost two different things of the way that um, Price was with his teammates and, how much he was able to teach them and, you know, teach him about the game and just about different things in general of how to approach things for what he thought was a good way to approach things uh, versus, um, you know, just what I guess the outside perception of him was. Um, 
and I think it's, you know, I don't, again, it's, I, I think it's another one of those things that we don't really know exactly, you know, what went on behind the scenes. We're only allowed, you know, in there for a certain time and can glean as much as we can from interactions and, and whatnot. But, um, yeah, I mean, I don't, it's hard to, it's hard to say if that was, you know, a, a reasoning behind them wanting to, to, um, to part ways with him or if it was probably more of the financial, um, side of it of trying to get under the, the $208 million threshold. And, and obviously Mookie's contract was going to do a lot of that, but adding on price, you know, helped. Yeah. Yeah. Looking ahead now a bit to the future of the Red Sox, what does a lost or shortened season mean for Red Sox free agents? And do you think they end up bringing a guy like Moreland back because now, um, development of like Bobby Dalback is kind of delayed? Yeah. I mean, those, those questions are so, uh, Hard to answer. I mean, yeah, Dalbeck's kind of missing a season and, uh, you know, especially a lot of the young, like, pitchers are all missing a season kind of to, 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 to de- develop. Um, what is a guy like, you know, Jackie Bradley obviously is entering the free agency. Um, yeah, I mean, honestly, I don't have any of those answers. You know, I, I, I don't know what they'll, what their thought process is in that sense or, you know, if there is baseball by some, you know, miracle and things, you know, quiet down. If, if there's like a month of games, how does that affect things? Um, is that enough for them to see, uh, see what they need to see? Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's all gonna, next, next winter's gonna be all kind of a, uh, like a jigsaw puzzle of trying to figure out, you know, where these guys are in terms of readiness just because they haven't been able to play, but they've still been able to kind of stay fresh. Um, and, and, you know, and yeah, where are their development timelines? It's kind of an unenviable task for a kind of a player development guy like Ben Crockett of, uh, how do you evaluate these guys? Um, and you're losing kind of a year of their, of their, uh, playing time really just because you don't get to see them. So, I mean, there's so many, so many kind of th- factors that go into, uh, losing this year, this year, or, you know, at least part of a year. We don't really know yet still. Um, and you know, that's, of course, one of the big ones. Kind of going along with that, the um, postponing of the CBT cap resets seems like it's going to affect the Red Sox quite a bit in their plans for 2021. And I know from the questions that we've gotten uh, from listeners on this podcast, a lot of folks were hoping that the cap would be reset in 2020 and then off season 2021 the Red Sox would be doing a lot of work in the free agent market to kind of bolster their roster. But if they have to stay under $208 million or $210 million, uh, for next year for another season before it resets, how do you think that's going to affect the Red Sox plan? And I know that just the offseason in general is going to be a really weird one, so that kind of adds a bit of another wrinkle into it. Yeah, I mean, like right now, uh, where they stand now, they're at, what, like $195-ish million, so they have – a little bit of wiggle room, but not much. Um, so, I mean, it's, you know, what are they going to do? Yeah, again, with, with Jackie, assuming they don't re-sign him, maybe they do. Um, a guy like, even like a guy like Workman is going to be entering free agency. Um, they obviously need to add to the rotation. I mean, you'd you'd be expecting or on an optimistic timeline, Sale would be coming back some point in 2021. But, um, but I mean, you'd still probably need to fill in, you know, you're not going to, I don't think they're going to be entering next year with the rotation, you know, question marks, so many rotation question marks that they have this year. So I would think that that'd be, that would be their uh, priority next winter is, is obviously the rotation. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, there, there's not a ton of wiggle room in that sense. Um, and, and kind of what they, um, yeah, what they do next winter will be if, if anything changes rules wise between now and then, um, just because of, you know, what baseball's been kind of uh, going through with all this. Um, obviously, that all remains to be seen, but right now that's kind of where things stand, and, I you know, there's there's going to be a lot more to be written about that story um, but uh, or that storyline, but I, I would assume, you know, pitching will be the top priority kind of entering next winter just with, you know, so many uncertainties floating in that arena right now. And it's not solid, right, that the CBT isn't going to reset at this point. That's still up in the air, right? 
Yeah, I mean, that's been reported, um, but, um, yeah, I don't, I, as far as I know, unless I've completely missed something, we haven't gotten like a memo from MLB making it a, you know, official statement. I think there's still things that are very much, you know, up in the air. Um, but yeah, that's something that's been reported. Um, but again, I'm not sure that it's, you know, been a definitive thing said by, said by MLB. Do you have any thoughts on any of the proposed realignment plans for 2020? If we are to get going, there's been the Arizona plan. There's been sort of the the Gulf Coast League uh, or the the Florida and Arizona plans mixed together. I mean, there's all these crazy ideas. Um, do you have any thoughts on these realignments and how that might affect the Red Sox? Yeah, I mean, if I'm being honest, I just don't see any of them working. And I think, you know, MLB has to try to, um, try to find ways to, uh, you know, see if this can work, but it just doesn't, I feel like, you know, with each passing week, there's less and less time and, you know, there's polls coming out of, you know, uh, you know, uh, even if these games start up, there's not going to be, you know, any games with fans to begin with, but people, you know, not wanting to go to games and how this like kind of affects all the bottom line of everything. But, you know, if, if you look at these games being played in, Florida and Arizona or even just Arizona itself, you have to kind of factor in, um, you know, quarantining all these players and coaches and obviously broadcast people, but then also restaurant people and, you know, hotel workers and um, these guys' families probably wouldn't be allowed to come with them. And that, you know, is a weird issue as well. Um, so I just, there's too, there's too many, um, it just feels like there's too many uh, kind of like hoops to jump through and not, you know, on top of the fact that if this is in Arizona, are they going to be playing like games in 110 degree weather um, and they're yeah. going to be trying to play multiple games. And there's just a lot of um, there's a lot of small details that I feel like are being overlooked. And I mean, I'm sure MLB itself isn't really overlooking them, but like the general public in terms of oh, let's bring the games back and do this. Like, yeah, that sounds fine, but, you know, there's so many different factors, you know, not to mention if it's a shortened season and there, like, are no playoffs or maybe there are playoffs, like, do they count these stats in a player's career? Like, do, like are these, is this just, like, an asterisk in the year of everybody's career? Um, you know, how does it affect, like, arbitration heading forward and guys, you know, those numbers in terms of contract situations and all that kind of stuff. So it's a, yeah, it's just a mess. And I feel like um, they have to keep saying they're trying to find some solution, but I think in the end they're going to end up saying that there is no solution and they'll just wait till next year. And I mean, I'm no, I don't think anybody wants to hear that. And I don't think anybody wants it to come to that, but at this point it just feels more and more like that every day. Um, so I, I, you know, unless, some miracle drug gets made, you know, within the next couple month or six weeks or something, and uh, it kind of uh, erases this virus and all the fears, you know, around it. Um, then, you know, I, I don't know. I just feel like it's too optimistic to assume that this is gonna, those those plans are gonna get off the ground. Um, and if you know they do get off the ground and then someone gets sick while they're down there and they have to stop games, there's just so many different vari- variables that are kind of up in the air right now um, with it. So I don't know how realistic any of those options are. Yeah, I was reading some anonymous player comments about this. I think it was in Baseball America. And one of the things that struck me was, like, the players themselves are worried about, you know, older clubhouse staff or coaches and um, guys who have, like, pregnant wives at home aren't necessarily thrilled about the idea of leaving them during this time period. So I think they might be running into a situation where you might have some guys that even if they do start playing games, don't feel comfortable reporting. Um, and in that case, the players' union would obviously have to defend those players. And I'm just not sure that MLB is going to come out looking good in any sort of situation where they might be forced to, like, potentially punish somebody for not showing up during a pandemic. You know, it would just, it seems like it's it's a really weird situation. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, like, all of this hinges, like, any of this, uh, any of these plans hinge, you know, are, are um, contingent upon the players agreeing to them. So if a majority of the players don't agree to this plan, 
um, and are uncomfortable with the kind of the parameters set out, then it's not going to get off the ground. Um, if they don't want to, if one of the things is you can't bring your family, um, and you know, that was one thing we asked Sale about. He has like a, a newborn, like a nine year old and a six year old. And he said, you know, even though he's not going to be playing, if he was playing this year, he, he, he can't imagine just, you know, being a, like being away from his family for five months or four months or whatever it is. Um, and only, only giving phone calls. These guys are on the road a lot, obviously, but you know, they eventually, you know, after a week or two, week or 10 days, come home for a couple days and then head back out. So yeah, I think, um, the players agreeing and feeling safe and all that, um, is a huge factor in all this. Keaton, you got anything else? Uh, I, well, uh, I mean, I think you kind of hit on it, but we were hoping to get your best guess for a return to games and it seems like your best guess is 2021. Yeah, I mean, I know no one wants to hear that, but I, I don't know. <laughs> Being realistic, I feel like that's the realistic uh, outlook. Um, if you wanted, like, this year, I mean, I if if this was going to happen this year, I honestly don't think anything would happen before August at this point. Um, but that even feels, like I said, that feels optimistic. Yeah, I'm kind of thinking we're going to be uh, worrying about the NFL even happening at this point. So Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, that was awesome. Thank you so much, Jen. We really appreciate it. Um, if you guys want to go follow Jen's writing, and I really uh, would encourage you to do so, please go on and subscribe to The Athletic. Um, Jen writes over there. And also, Jen, your Twitter handle is at JC McCaffrey? Yep. Okay, so give Jen a follow. Subscribe to The Athletic. Read her articles there. And, uh, Jen, as usual, we really, really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it.